This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. This is the G Podcast, and today we got a special guest. Latoya Chithon is in the building. Let's go, y'all. Once again, y'all, we greatly appreciate y'all listening or watching. This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. Latoya, thank you so much for joining. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Very excited to have you here. And for those of you who don't know, Latoya is a licensed sex and relationship therapist. So. We're just going to dive right in and get right to it. How did you even fall into this profession of being a licensed sex and relationship therapist? Where did this even start? I actually have been a licensed marriage and family therapist for over 10 years. And it's something that I've wanted to do since I was a kid. I was in middle school. I was the one who was giving out advice to my friends and thought I knew all the things about relationships. That's where it started. And I, I, I was dedicated to going into this field. And then when I was in grad school, I took my first sex education class. And um, in that class, I was like, I was really feeling the, the idea of sex counseling, helping mm. people out with their sex lives, because it's something that people don't do, people don't talk about, and it's something that's needed. Um, that's what put the spark in me um, from the beginning to go ahead and um, jump into that. But um, it was about three years ago, right before the pandemic, I started getting a lot of couples that were coming in with sex-related issues. And mm. um, a lot of them were dealing with a lot of shame um, related to religious upbringings and the things that they learned about sex growing up. And mm. so um, I kind of got tired of turning people away. I, was, I would tell them, I'm not a sex therapist. I, I don't specialize in that. And I really want to get you connected with somebody who can help you. And then finally, I was like, I need to stop doing that and just get certified. So that's how I jumped into this PhD program and, and just completed that, finished that up. And now I'm a, a sex therapist. Wow. Wow. So so if I hear this correct, you originally got into the idea of, I guess, relationship counseling. But a lot of that counseling or in doing that counseling, a lot of times if sex was brought up as like a point as an issue between couples, you mentioned upbringing. Like, is that the kind of like the biggest underlying common denominator in your experience as to why sex becomes an issue in a partnership? Yes, it has a big effect on it um, because people grow up hearing different things. So mm. it's not just ne when I say upbringing, it's not necessarily just, uh, you know, what our families taught us. It's what did the media teach us? What mm. did our friends talk about? Um, all the different parts uh, really contribute to how we develop our perspective on sex and sexuality. Um, since it's not something that people really talk about too much, a lot of people grow into their adulthood, even get married, and are uncomfortable having conversations about sex, even with their partner. Right, right. Yeah. That is that is very interesting. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to having this conversation as someone who uh, recently celebrated 10 years this year and um, I appreciate that. And and I first like found you on Instagram with the content that you were putting out. 
And I think it's really just a, a, a necessity uh, to, to normalize these types of discussions for reasons that you just mentioned. And, and I think uh, just like my question is, like, why should people seek marriage counseling, sex counseling, just why should people seek that in general, if at all? I think we should seek it because we need support. I like to tell my clients that everybody needs support sometimes. There's a lot of stigma around mental health and there's a lot of stigma around therapy, just like there's a stigma around talking about sex. So just because people are not talking about it doesn't mean that people are not struggling. And I mm -hmm. think that that's the, the main thing. Um, even therapists, regular marriage counselors or, or couples therapists don't always feel comfortable talking about sex related issues, just like I mentioned about myself um, before I got certified. How can it be that we're not comfortable having conversations about sex to help people in that realm when we are working with them on relationships? Sex mm. and relationships oftentimes are going to go hand in hand, especially when you talk about marriage. Just really recognizing that there's a, a need for us to seek help whenever we feel like things are not going the way we want them to be going. We feel like there's anything um, in our sex lives or anything in our marriage that we just don't feel like we're very connected with our partner or we think that maybe it, it's not things aren't working the way that we want them to be working. Um, that's when we reach out for support because the resource is there, so why not utilize it? What about folks who might think that they don't need any support and that they think everything is fine? Should those people maybe seek someone like yourself to, to find support? Or like, how would you respond to those individuals who say it's all good? Well, I mean, my first question would be, how does their partner feel? Mm. If both people feel like things are going pretty good and they don't really need any support, I mean, then I, I feel like they could wait. Wait until something comes up that lets you know that maybe it could be beneficial to you. But I also like to remind people that Going to therapy is really an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for individual growth. It's an opportunity for growth within the relationship and the connection and the intimacy in the relationship. And even if your relationship's going really well, it can't improve at all. So I think that by coming into therapy, whether no matter what the topic is, um, if you walk in with an open mind, you're curious to learn more and um, just understand yourself and the other person better, you're bound to learn a lot about yourself and the relationship and improve things. Even if you thought that everything was going really well, there's always room for improvement. I, I like the way you, you, you answer that. And it, and it leads me to something that I did read on your website where you said, if your partner is 95% of the problem, maybe it's time for you to work on your 5%. I read that quote and I was like, I like that. But can you tell me what that really means? As a couples therapist, a lot of the times um, there's one person who's kind of bringing their partner in. So they're dragging their partner into therapy, like, come on, we need to go work on these things. There's, there, I want to be proactive or there's some, some issues that I have with our relationship. And oftentimes the other person's like, no, nah, everything is fine in the relationship, right? The person who is um, bringing their partner in, they may feel like their partner is 95% of the problem. In other words, the, the problems that we're having are because of them. If they would just fix this or that, then everything will be fine in our relationship. And I've actually had couples say that. I've had partners say, well, they're most of the problem. They're the bulk of the problem. I tell them, work on your part. Mm -hmm. Because if you work on your 5%, oftentimes you're going to realize that you were more than 5% of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I've I've always obviously I don't I'm not a professional, but I've always told friends or uh, people if if we're having this conversation, like you don't have but so much control in your in your partnership. You got to worry about like what you can control on your end. Like, and I think I think like what your quote mentions, it, it reminds me of like oftentimes speaking to folks who are who are in relationships and they're always like waiting for their partner to react or do something according to their standard and they're waiting and like trying to make them be a certain way. Whereas the the reality is, is that's probably not going to be sustainable over the long term, not being able to accept who they are. And and, I, and I've always said that I think one of the things where in, in like a straight dynamic, where a man is courting a woman, what often happens is that man goes goes above and beyond uh, what's probably more than what he's willing to do consistently over a long period of time. And then that becomes like normalized in the dynamic and he can't sustain what he's like kind of established. And, Mm -hmm. And so I guess, what do you think about just like sustainability over time, like in a relationship, like from a sex perspective, what makes it sustainable over time? So that not just like fiery at the beginning and then it fizzles out somewhat quickly. Like how, how do you, in your opinion, make sure that it's a sustainable thing over a period of time? Change comes from within. So anytime we're making changes based on things that are going on on the outside, I think that's what makes it difficult to sustain it. I mean, you mm. can think about that with any anything. Like if I, if I want to go to the gym, I have somebody who's encouraging me to go to the gym, but I only go because they're saying something to me about it or because they're willing to go with me. Then if they're not available, or they're not pushing me anymore, it's going to be harder for me to make myself go because I don't have that internal motivation, right? I don't necessarily see the value in it the way that um, maybe they do since they always go on their own. I think that that's where it really comes in. When we want things to be sustainable and long lasting, it really has to be something that we are willing to, um, that we're interested in making the change, right? It can't just be that we're doing it because of somebody else. And like this idea, like, do you do you think you can make your partner happy or is it up to the individual to figure out how to show up and be happy? It's definitely up to the individual. Mm. Right. We, we can't change how someone feels. We can't uh, we can't uh, control their feelings. And it's not our responsibility. Mm. Right? A lot of a lot of partners do try to take responsibility for their for their um, spouse's uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to do this because I don't want them to get mad at me or I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm not going to tell them the truth about this. But the reality is that it's more important for you to show up and own your truth and just go ahead and put it out there, whatever needs to be said, because it's their responsibility to control their reaction mm-hmm. or their response to it. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, go and try to say things in a rude or disrespectful way because they need to control their own emotions or response to it. You know, it's definitely important in a loving relationship to um, always be aware of your partner's sensitivities, especially the things that they've expressed to you. Like, I don't like it when you uh, yell at me or slam the door and walk away, whatever. If they've said what they don't like, then try to honor that. But at the same time, recognizing that you can't let Um, the fear of how they're going to take it, uh, stop you from showing up as your true self. And that's the same no matter what we're talking about. Even if we're talking about sex, it's the same thing. It's important to, to show up and own what it is that your needs are or what it is that you don't like or do like from your partner, right? And, and opening up and sharing those things with them in a sensitive way, especially around sex, topics of sex, you know, we want to be sensitive because we don't want to say things intentionally that are going to hurt the other person's feelings. But recognizing that 
we can't make them happy. We can't control whether or not they get angry about something. It's mm-hmm. how they bring it. That's their stuff. And and like in in a, in a role like yours as a as a licensed professional, are are people coming to you to get tips on like the Karma Sutra? Are people coming to you to get tips on like what exactly are they coming to you for when it comes to the therapy, the therapy and what's their what's therapeutic about it? Like, what are we actually trying to get into when we're seeking those services? It might be that they're asking about Karma Sutra. I could definitely recommend some books and things like that for them if they have any uh, questions or if they want to spice things up. I, I do often recommend things like uh, certain TV shows or Netflix that I've seen, things like that, or books where they can learn more, websites where they can teach you how to do certain things. Um, so there are things like that that I would recommend. But honestly, the majority of people who come to me for sex-related concerns are coming because there's a what we would call a desire discrepancy, mm. where one person wants it more than the other person. Mm. Um, or someone may be experiencing just a low sex drive. They, they just, for some reason, they're just not interested in sex anymore. And they don't really understand why. Um, I also talk to people who are having physical concerns related to sex. Um, I've, I've spoken with men before who are having difficulties keeping erections, for example. The majority of sex-related concerns really stem from anxiety. Mm. Right. It's because we're in our heads. It's because we're worried about things. Is, is this does my partner like this? Are they going to be upset with me if I don't do that? Am I doing this right? Am I taking too long to orgasm? These are kind of the concerns that people will come into sex therapy with. And what I do is I work with a lot of people on understanding the symptoms of the anxiety that's underneath the fear, the worry, the stress about things that are that they're uh thinking and how can they be more present, right? How can they focus on being more mindful and recognizing when those th- those thoughts start to come up so that way they can um, start to soothe those thoughts, start to talk back to those thoughts, start to um, try to distract themselves from those thoughts. Mm-hmm. But it starts with recognizing that that is oftentimes what is holding us back from, from um, the sex that we really want. It's because we're in our heads for both men and women. Is there, in, is there a way to have common ground one partner just wants something sexually that the other partner just isn't trying to get with like what how do people who seemingly don't like they 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 in a relationship and then sexually they become what seems to be incompatible how do you find common ground there if there seems to just be like one is a fish and one is a bird well it's it's similar to how we would come to some sort of compromise on a lot of different topics it's it's uh, either you can meet in the middle somewhere on a compromise or it could be either or mm-hmm. um and it really comes down to what it is that that couple wants to do and because some things you're not going to be able to meet in the middle on it's not sex related but an example i always give related to compromise is you can't have half a baby if one partner wants a baby and the other partner doesn't want a baby you guys have to figure out what you're going to do um, something's got to give Either you're going to have a baby, you're not going to have a baby, or maybe you're going to break up because you want two different things. Mm-hmm. But either way, that's how you come to um, that type of a solution is you, you figure out where are you willing to budge? Where am I willing to budge? What are our non-negotiables? Mm. And some couples might get into a situation where they're just like, I am unwilling to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that sexually. And their partner can say, okay, I respect that. Or their partner can say, well, that's something that's really important to me. And if you're not able to do that, then you know, maybe this isn't the relationship for me. One, one of those things that I think I've heard become more popular is the idea of like 
polyamory in the dynamic is like more acceptable than like a monogamous partnership. And me, I have my own personal thoughts on just like how that is even really sustainable, in my opinion, when you start talking about polyamory and multiple partners on the same page over a period of time. But I guess just from 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 your professional point of view, when you start talking about this dynamic, have you seen an increase in those sort of relationships when it comes to clients and needs? And just what's your sort of like maybe take on why that's maybe more common than what it used to be? I think it's a combination. So so to answer your first question, yes, I've noticed an increase in it. I time it right around the pandemic. Personally, that's, that's when I started noticing my couples coming in more, talking about um, this idea of opening their relationship or ethical non-monogamy or polyamory. You know, there's there's various different ways that someone um, may approach this or a couple may approach this. But during the pandemic, I started noticing a big increase in that. And I was able to support a few couples through trying to figure out um, whether or not that was something that was for them. I, and then you were asking, I'm sorry, you were, what was your question about the difference between the two? Was it? So yeah, I was asking and I was asking just like, have you just personally noticed like an increase in, in, in that d- dynamic when it comes to your clients? And then maybe why do you think it's it's trending in that direction in terms of it being more common? Yes, yes. So I've noticed the increase for sure. And then I would say that the reasons I think are, are twofold. I think one thing is that it's become more, uh, the society's become more open mm-hmm. to the idea. You, you run into a lot more people who are um, open to having conversation about it. Uh, people who are open to exploring in that area. Um, it's more in the media. We see it more on TV. We see it with um, things like sister wives and stuff like that that's come up. And the those things make the society more open to and curious about it. Like maybe this is an option for us, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think the other part of it that has contributed to the increase is um, just the uh, dynamics between couples. I think that a lot of people are feeling more disconnected. And I think that that really was evident during the pandemic. When we're all running and busy and working and dealing with kids all day long, we don't necessarily realize how disconnected we are. But when we're stuck in the house and we can't leave, uh, we're with this person who we're, we've been with for a long time. Maybe we're married to them and we just don't feel as connected to them. We just don't feel like we really want to spend time with them. Mm-hmm. Right? As the relationships got more disconnected, I think that people started opening their minds to considering trying different things. And this was one of the different options that kind of came up. If we can kind of supplement our relationship, if we can find someone else to step in and support us in uh, building our relationship and you know, provide additional things for us, whether that be sexually, whether that be having someone else around the house to help out with the kids. It just became more of an option for people. And one of the main things that I talk to a lot of people about with this is deciding to open your relationship is really not something that should be done in a, from a space of desperation, mm. right? It shouldn't be done as a, a, a way to um, save their relationship because their relationship's not what they want it to be or need it to be. So they're thinking they're going to add someone else in and it's going to get better. But adding someone else in in those kinds of situations will oftentimes make things worse mm-hmm. because things are already not functioning well, right? There's already gaps in the relationship that need to be addressed. So if they just go bring in somebody else in, that's not actually likely to solve the problem. What would be, say, I got a couple, I guess a couple questions, but but with that said, if 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 
I think it's not uncommon. Couples will struggle in, in the idea of either having a hall pass or opening things up or doing something where you include somebody else does become like a, a topic of conversation. But to your point, to to you wouldn't necessarily recommend that because you're trying to find a remedy. So I guess my question, my question is, what are some healthier things that you might recommend to folks in a situation like that, that you think is a a better remedy than say what we just described? I would say therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's what I would say, right? Because if, if you know that things are not going how you want them to be going in the relationship, you know things are off, right? Mm. You know you're feeling disconnected. You know that the relationship's not where it used to be. You know you're unhappy or your partner's unhappy. That's a good time for you to get some support um, actually work on the issues that are going on. And that's hard. It's hard to go to therapy and work on the issues. It's much easier to distract ourselves with something else, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about um, stepping into what you know you need and being honest with yourselves about it. And and I and think I would imagine just with a role <clears throat> like all of us as human beings have like how we said we were raised a certain way. And then our environments kind of give us like a lens that we might view things. We show up with these views and biases. And, and, I, and I would imagine like when people do ask me for quote unquote inside or opinion on relationships, I find it very difficult to help or share that insight because what works for me, probably you wouldn't do it the way that I do it. You, your, your, your tolerance for risk might not be as high as mine in certain regards. I find that part difficult to like talk people through. Like from, from your point of view, you're not there to tell people what their relationship should look like, but like what are just some clear signs of both like a health, like what healthy relationships kind of should, characteristics that should be there, and the opposite, like what are some some characteristics or signs that things maybe aren't as healthy as you think? Mm, this is a good question. I would say one of the main things is what happens during conflict, mm. right? Because conflict is inevitable. If you're with someone for like more than a few hours or maybe more than a few days, you're probably, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have some sort of conflict. It could be something very simple, right? right? Uh, and, and that's the thing is I think a lot of people are afraid of conflict and they think that any kind of conflict is a bad thing. And that's oftentimes from our upbringing. How did our family handle conflict? Did mm-hmm. they avoid conflict? Was every single conflict this huge big blowout that makes you feel like, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to cause a big blowout. But what's going on with the conflict? When, when it's happening, when it comes up, how are you guys responding? Can you talk about the things that are going on? Can you approach your partner and have a conversation? If you're, if you're super calm and you're just like, I want to talk to you about something. And you start kind of you know, letting them know what's on your mind. What is their response or reaction to that? I think that that's a big thing. That's a big challenge that comes up. Um, in relationships. Um, Dealing with conflict and how you communicate, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't get any kind of training on how to communicate, right? We pick Mm -hmm. up how to communicate based on how other people around us are communicating growing up. And it's not always the healthiest forms of communication. Those are the main things I would say. And not to just simplify it that much, but those are at the core of, of the challenges that people have in relationships. Because if you can have, if you can handle the conflict in a way where you guys can work together to get to some sort of resolution, it doesn't really matter what the conflict's about. Right. right? So that's a, that's a big thing. Um, Another thing I would say is um, 
do you feel accepted by your partner? Mm. Right? Do you feel like you, uh, your partner really appreciates who you are and values you? Um, is your partner putting you down? Everything you say, are they like calling you names? Like, you stupid. Why, why would you say something like that? That doesn't make any sense. Are they saying things that really make you feel bad? Mm -hmm. uh, to where you can't really show up as your full self. You feel like you have to walk on eggshells in a relationship. Recognizing things like that. How do I feel in this relationship? That is um, another thing to really consider. Um, and then, of course, there's the big things, right? If we, if there's violence in the relationship, if there's aggression in the relationship, we don't feel safe physically. And obviously, that's a that's a sign for um, that we need some support. But noticing that emotional piece, I think, is the thing that kind of goes unseen. People deal with things for a long time, feeling like this is just how it is. You know, this is what it's always going to be like. But the reality is that we can always make changes if both people are willing to do the work, to really look at themselves and see what they are willing to change and work together with their partner to try to find a better way. I, I, I love the way you, you frame that, well, like boiling it down to communication and conflict and how you 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 manage both of those i think is uh it's spot on i've i've framed I've, I've said recently that i've said it's marriages they they boil down to like finances and uncertainty like when things are uncertain and the money's not good like it's just not gonna work but i think beyond that the conflict that comes from when things are uncertain and how poorly things are communicated when things are uncertain or when finances are bad is really like what makes that more I say widespread in a, in a bad way than it needs to be it's like what in my experience a lot of us growing up you mentioned we don't see the models close to us how to communicate I think another thing that a lot of folks struggle with and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this idea because it's a man because it's a woman like men can get away with being not being as emotionally available because that's a man thing and women can be more emotionally reactive because that's a woman thing for example i'm i'm curious the the idea of emotional intelligence which you which you hinted at in terms of earlier like a lot of us don't really get much exposure or training with that just in, in your opinion for those who maybe struggle with that emotional intelligence bit what, what are maybe some resources or things that folks can do to help with that aspect of of the relationship one thing that i want to say is I think that it is, it can be related to gender, right? And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, it can be related to gender, but I'm an attachment-based therapist. And what that means is I use the attachment theory. In the attachment theory, uh, there's uh, people who tend to respond more anxiously. Um, they're considered anxiously attached. Um, they're the pursuers in the relationship. And then the people on the other side of the relationship, typically, because these two people oftentimes will end up together, are the people who are more avoidant. They're the, they're the withdrawers in the relationship. The relationships then have this push-pull dynamic that's a pursuer-withdrawer. Um, so I think that the, the way that we respond whether we're emotionally intelligent, whether we are comfortable talking about emotions, whether we are interested in, in trying to resolve issues and kind of we enter into fight or whether we enter into flight during a conflict. All of those things, I think they're less gender based and I think they're more based on their attachment styles. Because I talk to a lot of men who are more emotional, you know, they show their emotions more than their wives do. And then so if the wife was in this example was raised in a household where they didn't talk about emotions much and their her emotions were dismissed um, and she doesn't feel comfortable opening up in that way, then 
she's going to be a person who's probably more avoidant or withdrawing. And then if the, if in this example, the husband likely grew up in a household where people talked about their emotions, maybe they were loud and yelling when they were talking, but they were letting them out. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, he may be more comfortable with emotions, which then may make her feel uncomfortable. Like why you keep talking about your emotions all the time? Hold mm -hmm. it in. What, what are you, what are you talking about? Right. So I, I think that it has more to do with the attachment styles mm -hmm. and Going back to the gender piece, um, in our society, it is more welcomed for a woman to be um, emotionally expressive, right? Um, it's more expected. And for men, um, it's, I always tell my clients, unfortunately, in our society, men get two emotions. Either you're angry or you're all right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? When you're growing up, when men are growing up in our society, they're not, they're not really given the space to say, I'm feeling really sad right now. Right. Or I'm disappointed in this or I'm feeling a little jealous that they got that ice cream and I didn't get that ice cream. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're told, suck it up, deal with it, man up. What are you talking mm -hmm. about? We can do cry about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So as a result, men are learning or I'm sorry, men have learned to stuff their emotions, which makes it even harder, I believe, for the men who are more anxiously attached. Right. Because they are not they're in a space where they can't be themselves at all and they know they want to talk about it, but they don't want people to to judge them for talking about how they're feeling or being, quote unquote, too emotional. Mm -hmm. right? and which, so, which can't afford to be, unfortunately, especially black men. Right. Right. And that's a, that's definitely a, a huge part of it. The, the racial piece does play into it in our country as well. No, I. <clears throat> That, that's spot on. I think it, and it makes me think about a, a couple of things like in terms of like the upbringing and, and, and how we start to shape how we exist in, in, in today's world. So, you know, I grew up, people were starting to get cell phones, but it was still like you had to wait free nights and weekends. <laughs> the Internet wasn't on the phone. You, you couldn't just text without like a certain limit of text. Yeah. Today, <laughs> they got Pornhub, right? on the phone like it's just like the access to sex in terms of what what culture is today and how it was i think it's it's when i just look at say like a little kim a foxy brown versus what say more normalized today it's 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 increased in my opinion and i'm i'm curious like <clears throat> how do you think just our our culture in terms of like the influence of hip-hop music more specifically how do you feel like that impacts how we show up in relationships and what we expect out of each other in, in, in a sexual way? Well, I think that the media has such an influence on the society. So even when you think about back in the day, the media still had an influence on society. It's just that the message that they were sending was a different message. Mm -hmm. right? It was, I believe, I would agree that it was dialed down, down a lot. Right. We were just entering the space where people talked about or I'm sorry, would make music about these kinds of things. Before that, it was a lot of love songs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. right? But when you were talking about like Little Kim, Foxy Brown, I think that was kind of the beginning of it. And then rap in general, when rap music came out and they started talking about um, sex, sexual things with women and things like that. That was the beginnings of it. But now it's just normalized. Mm -hmm. And I think that combined with access to porn and uh, people just being just more sexualized, I think that those things all contribute to um, a lot of the challenges that, that people have growing up these days. 
I talk to uh, a lot of men who come in and, and they're, I, for all of my couple sessions, I always offer one individual session with each partner. And during that session, I explore um, their background. What did you learn growing up about various topics? Um, something that's very common is that um, men will share that they started watching porn very young. And then I ask them, how do they feel like it affected um, them once they started getting into relationships? And they talk about how it was difficult for them because porn is not an educational, that's not educational <laughs> material, right? That's not supposed to be teaching anybody about sex. Not real. <laughs> that's not how sex is, right? We have actors and we have, you know, people who are producers who are jumping in and trying to help the angle to be perfect and stuff like that. And it really creates an unrealistic expectation of what sex is. And then the, um, the boys will grow up and get into relationships and they're expecting sex to be like that. So they're really ill-prepared um, because it's not something that's being talked about by their family members most of the time. Their friends who they're getting a lot of advice from don't know much. <laughs> and then the porn is, is not an educational material, it's not an educational thing, but it's used that way, right? Because that's where people go to learn for years and years and years in the privacy of their own bedroom, wherever they're at, on their cell phones nowadays. And mm -hmm. I think all of that contributes to the challenges that they begin to have when they are in long-term uh, committed relationships. And, and like, also to like parents and how parents will position just things for, for, for young boys versus young girls in terms of like what's acceptable. Oftentimes young boys in the family can go on dates before say the sister could, if the sister could even at all, things like this, for example, in, 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 from, from your experience, like how, like what is too early to be introducing that sort of conversation? When you're when you do have kids and you are trying to set them up to be well-rounded and successful, like when should parents really start talking to them, to their kids about sex and things like that? Whew, this is right up my alley. I just finished writing an entire dissertation about this. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, wow. when I was doing that, <laughs> when I was doing that, I, I learned a lot about um, how things are handled in the other cultures mm. um, and how the statistics show up in the United States versus how they show up in other places. Mm. And um, one of the things that I was reading was talking about how um, in Europe, oftentimes they start the children with learning about sex when they're in kindergarten. Now they're obviously not teaching them what you would teach a 15 year old about sex, but they're starting with things like consent. They're starting with when they touch your arm like that and you don't like it, you tell them, I don't like it when you touch my arm like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you teach a five-year-old that, and then as they continue to grow each year, continue to add onto it and work your way up, when you get to high school and this child, this person's trying to touch them, they're going to say, no, I don't like that. I don't want you to touch me like that. Right. They're, because their voice has been um, given to them. They have the voice. They've learned mm -hmm. the words. Right. And they they understand that it's OK for them to say that. And that's just a small example. But just by by starting them really young and starting to add to their knowledge as they grow, that's what I would recommend. The second thing that I would say is something that I learned. Um, I'm a parent um, and I remember when my first son was growing up, uh, he was really little. And I learned that 
you want to have conversations with them when they start asking questions, right? Oftentimes people ask questions, especially related to sex and the, the parents will shy away from the questions because parents oftentimes don't want to feel the discomfort of having these kinds of conversations, but they need to be had, right? And if we avoid and, and try to give them a, a little story about a, a stork dropping off babies and stuff like that, we're really doing them a disservice because then they're going to go and hear more from other people. And it might not be the message that you want them to hear. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage parents, so as your, your children start asking questions, to just be open and honest about the questions, right? T telling them the names of body parts. Mm -hmm. If it's called a vulva, call it a vulva. Don't call <laughs> it a poo-poo or a tiki or a, you know, anything extra, cuckoo. Like, that's not helping anybody. Scientific from the start. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. it's helping you to feel more comfortable. But in the long run, you're really doing the child a disservice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that conversation should look different for a, a young person if one is a uh, different gender, say a, a male versus a female, like or a young boy versus a young girl? Do you think one should be exposed to certain information before the other or certain types of or that should the curriculum should look different based on that at all? No. I think that we all need the information. I think that all children need the information. I could see something like um, the, the period talk mm -hmm. being something that maybe you talk to a girl about and maybe the boy can find out about that a little bit later. That's the only thing that I could even think of. But I, even with that, why can't they know what's going on? This mm -hmm. is human development. Just like if we were going to talk about any other part of human development, uh, we just need to normalize talking about sex. Mm -hmm. And and also another thing that I like to remind people of is that is, this is not intended to be a one-time conversation. You know, they always show it on TV. Even when I was growing up, they would show on TV the birds and the bees talk like it's a one-time thing, right? We, but we need to have ongoing conversations. So when they first start asking about where do babies come from, you give them some information about where do babies come from. You don't necessarily have to give them all the information, but what can you share with them developmentally appropriate that they, someone their age needs to know and, and could understand? What can you share with them that's going to help them to be like, okay, I feel like I got some information today. Like, I feel like I know the answer to the question that I asked. And then as they get older, when more questions come up, when the topics of, oh, I want to have a boyfriend or I want to have a girlfriend, when those kinds of conversations come up, then you have additional conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like the ongoing piece <clears throat> because it's continuous. Like, like you said, it, it, and, and especially when you're dealing with the young folks and they're always going through so much rapidly, like the information changes. And I appreciate you just kind of having this, this conversation with me because <clears throat> like, again, I think it's just a new world. It's a, it's a new day in terms of how kids are growing up, what, what, is normal to them, what was versus normal to our generation or my generation or my parents' generation. Like it's, it's just a new day. The tools that we need as a community just to ensure that everybody's able to, to cope and process all of this stuff in a healthy way, I think is one of the reasons why I just appreciate you having this conversation with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It leads me to, do you think there's like, a too like just a too young where we we don't want to promote like so let me take a step back because i think we, we we've said that, that the the society has changed a bit some might argue for the better some say this is like a liberating time and i guess my question is is that potentially when i is that 
what is too young for people to really be participating in such a, a grown act as sex? Like from a professional standpoint, like, is there a such thing as like, they're probably too young to be doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the people will, people are going to do what they're going to do. Right. And the, the response or the, the hope that I would have in all of that is that they would be mature enough to have an idea of what they're doing. Right. I, I think that just to put an age on it, I would say before middle school would be, would be, in my opinion, too young. And I know that even when I do for, for as a therapist, when we're talking about consent and we're talking about uh, children being able to, for example, go to the doctor by themselves without their parent knowing or um, get birth control without their parent knowing the different states have their different laws. But uh, I know in California, it's age 12 mm. you know, um, when they start having um, relationships with people who are uh, who are you know, within a few years of them. We in California, we actually have like a, a whole group graph that shows if they're, for example, if they're 12 years old and their partner's 15 years old, then that's okay. That's like not reportable. If they're 12 years old and their partner's 16 years old, okay, that's now reportable. And now we may need to you know, let the authorities know. So that's the number I would give since you're asking for a number. But honestly, it really depends on the maturity of the person, mm. right? And oftentimes a 12 year old or a 13 year old or a 14 year old is probably not really completely aware of what's going on. And, and, and they probably don't know much about their bodies. Um, they probably don't understand much about relationships. If someone is um, involved in a sexual relationship when they're that young, it's probably not the healthiest relationship. So that's my, I guess that's my answer on it. But people are just going to do what they're going to do. And, and oftentimes <laughs> they're going to do what they're doing based on what they see, based on what they hear, based on what their peers are doing. Mm -hmm. And then also based on what they've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. People are being exposed to a lot of things. Like even right now, we're talking about this idea of uh, people watching porn, children watching porn when they're young. Um, in some families, people people are being, they're exposing their children to things. And right. News and stuff like that. And some people are very inappropriate in the way that they um, talk about things in front of their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. I get to hear a lot of the stories because I do ask people like, what did, how did your parents treat uh, the topic of sex when you were growing up? So I get to hear a lot of different experiences that people had. So depending on people's exposure level, that could also trigger them starting uh, in sexual activities earlier as well. Oh, that's a thousand percent. And, and, and we, so we, we grow up, we, we go through these experiences and we carry so much with us that we that we learn and it's you don't necessarily have to be in a relationship relationship to try to or to reach out to a therapist to address some of these things that you might be identifying you know what i'm saying because a lot of this stuff does start early unfortunately for us so maybe maybe that is a missing step like people 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 will say like how do you know you're ready to even be in a serious relationship or go with something like a marriage. I'm I'm curious, just like, do you, like <clears throat> if if you are say considering like long term partnership with somebody, what are some of the just things that if you haven't had conversations about from a sexual standpoint, like in your opinion, that you might say, look, 
if you haven't had these conversations, you might want to make sure you you start having them sooner than later if you're really thinking about long-term partnership. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it goes back to what it is that you want, mm. what you don't want, what you like, what you don't. Um, learning that about your partner, right? And then being able to express that yourself. I talk to a lot of married couples who they could have been married for 10, 20 years and they just don't talk about sex at all. Before you get into a long-term relationship, I think it's important to explore questions, whatever questions come up for you, whatever it is that the, the do's, the don'ts, whatever it is that you want to talk about and your partner wants to talk about, I think that, that those are the things you want to start talking about even before, um, just so that you can make sure that you're on the same page on things and make sure that you guys are comfortable having those conversations because the conversations are necessary. And if you don't have those conversations, your relationship might not be successful or you mm-hmm. might end up in, in therapy because you guys aren't talking about things and you need some support in learning how to have those difficult conversations. So starting early on and being comfortable and open to to talking about things, even though it's uncomfortable. You know, if you're sharing the most intimate thing that you can do with another person with your partner, then it's necessary that you're able to have conversations about it. I agree a thousand percent. And I think one of the like awkward things in the community oftentimes is you know, religion will have a big impact on how we perceive sex. Do you promote sex before marriage as a healthy act? Or would you say the religious folks got that one right? <laughs> uh, let me see. I would say, well, I would say I don't promote anything. I'm not, I'm not really promoting things, right? Because I want people to do what feels like what they feel like they're supposed to be doing. And that's where I, that's where I would draw the line. Because just because a person is comes from a religion where they believe that that sex before marriage is wrong, for example, that doesn't mean that they get the, they have the right to push that on someone else, right? Because even with religion, it's each person's individual decision, what it is that they want to do. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the ones who have to deal with whatever the repercussions are of the choices that they make. But I do believe that when people are in a committed relationship, and they do feel secure in that relationship. I do feel like the sex is better, right? Because you're not as concerned about, is this person going to leave? Or is this person uh, going to call me next week, right? Or is this person only using me for one thing? You're, you're not dealing with a lot of those things if you're in a committed relationship or if you're in a marriage. So I think that those are definitely the benefits. But going back to what you were saying, a lot of people who come from religious backgrounds, they do have issues related to sex. There's a lot of shame associated with sex. And that's what my dissertation was about. Um, Mm. Helping black women who come from Christian backgrounds to uh, have a better understanding of the, the shame that comes from, um, that can come from their experiences and uh, what we're told growing up and having to unlearn that in order to heal. So that way they can have, the um the sexual relationship that they were created to have wow that that is a like it's a the the topic of what you did for your dissertation is just like a very interesting thing to study to say the least and like just to do that research did you have to go interview people to collect that sort of data to to break it down like just what was that process for such a dissertation actually did was um, I used research that is already completed. There's a lot of research out there. I shouldn't say a lot. There is some research out there 
right? There needs to be more, um, mm-hmm. especially more that's going to include data from Black women. So I do plan on doing research um, on my own in the future. Um, but what I wanted to focus on for this project is I actually uh, used the research that was already out there about the challenges that are um, going on uh, related to shame, specifically with Christian and Black women, and really looking at the intersection of all of those different identities to see how can we help them to uh, be able to heal from it, um, recover from that shame, unlearn those things that they learn and build the sexual life that they want. I actually developed a curriculum. So that was the focus of it. I I utilized the research that was already out there so that I can um, spend my focus and my time on actually developing a curriculum for therapists to use. So that when people come in to their office with these challenges, because that's what led me to this grad school program is I kept having women coming in with these same issues. And they would say, Uh, I was told, don't have sex, don't do it, it's wrong, it's bad, I'm going to go to hell, all the way up until I got married, and then the night of my wedding, I'm supposed to know what to do. I don't know what to do, Mm -hmm. and I heard that over and over and over again. That's um, That's really my focus at this point, is really trying to help these women to unlearn that, right, and and to heal from that shame. So that's what my curriculum is for. Very nice, very nice. And and you are currently based out of... Atlanta, if I remember correct, right? But like if, if if people listening wanted to get in contact with you, maybe even seek your services in, in any way, like what what states are you licensed to practice? Mm-hmm. I'm licensed in Georgia, California, North Carolina. And then I, um, I also am registered to see people via telehealth in Florida. Um, as far as therapy goes, those are the states where I can practice. And then um, I'm also um, a coach, right? So I'm also a relationship coach. And coaching is not limited by state. Um, For things like uh, different resources with um, improving their sex life, uh, resources, learning how to use mindfulness, for example, in order to um, increase their desire um, during sex, those things um, I could actually work with people no matter where they're at through coaching. And and we're we're about to get out of here. Do you mind just giving like a layman's term definition of just what the difference is between therapy and coaching, just so people can understand that there is a difference between the two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, with uh, a co a therapist is someone who has received a certain level of education. We would at least need to have graduate school done in education. So we've taken a lot of uh, therapy classes, sociology classes. Uh, We've taken a lot of community mental health type classes, and we learn a lot about mental health, right? So we are equipped to help people through things like trauma, to help people through things improving anxiety, reducing anxiety symptoms um, or depression. So the actual clinical diagnoses, we can diagnose people and then we also um, can help them um, with uh, improving in those areas. A coach, I like to consider a coach kind of like a life coach. They, they come alongside to help and support people. They can help hold people accountable. They can uh, educate people, provide people with um, different resources or skills that they might be able to use that are 
at a non-clinical level. Because to be a coach, there's no regulation. As I said with um, my therapy license, we're licensed by state, at least with my type of licensure, it's by state. We're regulated by a board and there's a lot of things that we, a lot of hoops that we have to jump through and then continue to maintain in order to keep our licenses. Whereas people who are coaches, there's no minimum requirements or anything like that. Sometimes people will get certified by some sort of a certifying board, but that's not a requirement. So if I want to say that I'm a business coach, I could just say that I'm a business coach and I might Mm -hmm. be using my my lived experiences from running my own business or I might be using um, information that I read in some books. I could be using whatever I want to be using to kind of develop my method and then work with people through whatever it is that I want to help them through. But there's no regulations to how I do that. That's kind of the biggest difference between the two. Got it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would just want to like leave listeners with um, as a takeaway for, for folks listening? Any like not say last words, but just any takeaways or anything that you hope people can walk away with after listening or watching this episode? The main thing I would say is get support if you need support. And then another thing that I feel like is important to know that I I like to tell people is that oftentimes sex issues and relationship issues go hand in hand. Sometimes people will come in and say, our sex life is, is not, our sex life is amazing, but our relationship is really, we're having a lot of issues in our relationship or vice versa. But they think that they're not connected, but the reality is that they are connected. Oftentimes, if we're thinking that we only have issues in one area and we're perfectly fine in the other, we might not be recognizing the things that are actually going on in that other area or how it's being impacted by the first area not being where it should be. So just keeping that in mind that by coming in and talking to a therapist, you really can get more understanding about what's going on. You can get more information on the origin. That's another thing that a therapist can help with um, is really learning more about the origin and exploring the childhood stuff to see how are those things impacting how you're showing up today or the challenges that you're having today. Um, But going in and getting that support and remembering that you don't have to be in therapy forever. Therapy, I believe, should be for a season. You get in, well, with me, I'm very solution focused. So I'm like, come in, I'll help you out to get the the skills you need, the coping skills, or to learn more information on what's going on and how to deal with things with you and your partner. And then when you guys feel like you're doing better, I want to send you on your way, right? You can come back for a tune-up if you feel like things are off or you don't know how to handle something, then I would like to still be a resource for you. But I'm not a believer that people should be in therapy forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to go because you like to go and it's something that you do for your self-care and it makes you feel good, great. I know I like going to therapy Mm -hmm. because do go to therapy. It's a great place for me to go and have an outlet and just have a space to talk because as a therapist, I'm carrying a lot. And I'm sure that Everybody out there is carrying a lot too. So that would be my biggest thing. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you being so just open and, and willing to have this conversation with me here on the podcast. And I definitely look forward to just following up with you here in the future. And we'll leave that at that. I look forward to seeing what else we can come up with. Um, but once again, if you don't know, this is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and f- everything else. I greatly appreciate y'all listening. Make sure y'all hit that subscribe button. Make sure you tune in for the next episode. It doesn't matter how you feel. Don't wait, man. Go get y'all some therapy.